Hello, and welcome. I am Glenn Tiffert, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and manager of its project on China's global sharp power, which is hosting this event in conjunction with our co-sponsor on the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society. On October 6, 1976, Mao's widow and her closest associates, known to us as the Gang of Four, were arrested in a mostly bloodless operation that eliminated them from the succession struggle that followed Mao's death. They were expelled from the party, put on public trial, and imprisoned for decades. Their arrest was followed by the Beijing Spring, an extraordinary moment of political and intellectual ferment that one of our guests, Roger Garside, witnessed and documented in his first book, Coming Alive, China After Mao. Sadly, Deng Xiaoping used the Beijing Spring to discredit his rivals in his bid for power, and when it had served that purpose, he crushed it. Deng launched the economic reforms that transformed China into the colossus that we recognize today. But the limits of his vision became abundantly clear in June 1989, when the aspirations of millions of Chinese for corresponding political reforms were ruthlessly crushed once more. China has racked up astounding achievements in the decades since. But today's Chinese youth speak of involution, neijuan, being trapped in an endlessly intensifying cycle of struggle and work without ever getting ahead. In recent years, Xi Jinping has pursued a kind of political involution, doubling down on discipline and repression for fear that the Chinese Communist Party was hurtling towards the fate of its Soviet cousin. In many ways, his methods are backfiring. They are alienating critical partners, raising international tension and the risk of military confrontation, and threatening to squelch the dynamism of the Chinese people who have catapulted their country to the heights that it now enjoys today. To many observers, Xi's position looks secure. But is it? Our speakers today, Roger Garside and Tang Biao, provoke us to think outside the box, to look beyond Xi Jinping and to imagine a China that repudiates his vision and instead chooses democracy, a path long denied to it, if only to save itself from the potentially calamitous dead end that Xi is leading them into. How could that happen? What role can outsiders play to nurture or facilitate it? After their presentations, Elizabeth Economy will then join them in conversation. I'd like to remind you that our session today will close with a brief question and answer period. You can submit your Q&A, uh, your questions using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screens. And with that, I'd like to turn the mic over to my co-host, Orville Shell, who will introduce our guests. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, it's a great pleasure to co-host this with Hoover, uh, uh, Asian Society Center in US-China Relations. Um, Roger Garside, our first uh, uh, presenter, is a person whose distinguishing feature for me is that he brings over a half a century of lived history with China to bear on his new and very interesting and provocative book, China Coup. Uh, he began in Hong Kong in the late 50s, attached to a Gurkha regiment. He studied in Hong Kong beginning in 1965, just before the Cultural Revolution erupted and then went to Beijing as part of the uh, uh, Foreign Service, uh, the embassy uh, of the UK uh, to spend several years just uh, during the, the Cultural Revolution sort of high tide. Then he became a fellow at MIT, did a stint at the World Bank, but then went back to the embassy in uh, Beijing again uh, in the late 70s at another very seminal moment after Zhou Enlai died and Tiananmen Square filled with people. And then the Democracy Wall uh, movement erupted in 78, 79, about which he wrote a wonderful book called Coming Alive. Uh, and so I, I think for him to look back over this great sweep of history and try to make sense out of it is his really distinguishing feature. And we're thrilled to have him uh, with us today. As he says, a rapidly changing society with a static political system, that's what characterizes China. And he says, I believe that China's search for a modern identity is entering a new and perilous phase. So Roger, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, Oval, for your introduction and thank you, Hoover and the Asia Society for inviting me to speak at this event. I'm honored to be in such company. And greetings to all of you who have logged into this event. So what role can outsiders play in helping China towards democracy? 
First, let me say what they cannot do. They cannot dictate how China is governed, but they can and must help those Chinese who want democratic China to achieve it. People like Deng Biao. In this, our opponent is not the Chinese people, but the regime which rules them. The prospect of China becoming the biggest economy in the world under a totalitarian regime equipped with advanced technologies of control is a nightmare and a nightmare which we must prevent from becoming reality. The regime which rules China today is totalitarian, not authoritarian. Deng Biao will have more to say on that. The prevailing view is that this regime is strong and stable and will rule China for the foreseeable future. But I contend that this regime is outwardly strong and inwardly weak. This supposedly all-powerful regime is actually powerless to resolve a whole array of deep-seated problems that have plagued China for years, indeed decades. Why? Because these problems are actually the product of the totalitarian system. I examine them in detail in my book, but let me sketch out a few now. First, the economy which has recorded spectacular growth is now itself beset by serious problems. The transition to the market economy, which liberated the energy of the Chinese people, was stopped in its tracks in 2008 by the Communist Party. The commanding heights of the economy, including banking, utilities, and transport, were kept in the state sector. Why? Not for economic reasons, but for political ones. The party feared that to allow private companies to occupy all the, the commanding heights in the economy would destroy its political monopoly. The transition to the market economy will not be resumed unless and until the political system is changed. To compensate for the inefficiency which has resulted from stopping the transition, the state has been pumping vast amounts of credit into the economy to maintain uh, an artificially high growth rate because it fears the unemployment and corporate defaults which would result from lower growth. The result is a debt mountain. No nation with a debt mountain as high as China's has ever reduced it without either recession or prolonged inflation. Second great problem, the catastrophic state of its environment, vividly illustrated by Liz Economy in her book, The River Runs Black. The regime has given economic growth priority over pollution control because, as I've just pointed out, it fears the political consequences of lower growth. It has also suppressed the non-governmental organizations which have a vital role to play in monitoring pollution and holding government and industry to account. This totalitarian regime does not permit the growth of vigorous autonomous NGOs in any field. A third problem is China's moral crisis, which is officially recognized at its heart is corruption. This corruption is the result of a deliberate strategy adopted to sustain the regime. When the Tiananmen massacre of 1989 destroyed the moral authority of the Communist Party, its leaders rebuilt the loyalty of officials by offering them an unprecedented opportunity for corruption. The greatest privatization of state-owned assets 
which the world has ever seen, was conducted without requiring legal clarity of the identity of the new owners, party officials and their friends in business, exercise effective control without legal accountability. To eliminate this systemic cause of corruption would require the rule of law, an independent judiciary, a free press, and political pluralism. In short, a democratic revolution. Fourth problem. This supposedly mighty regime is fearful. It fears truth. The party has always hidden the truth about events of immense importance in the history of its 70-year rule. It fears democracy. It has suppressed freedom in Hong Kong because of its fear that the attachment to democracy and the rule of law of just 7.5 million Hong Kongers would infect the 1.4 billion inhabitants of the mainland whom it keeps in a condition of political slavery. It fears, <coughs> it fears religion. It's alarmed by the explosive growth of all major religions in China since 1979. Alarmed that so many men and women should regard God rather than the party as a supreme authority in the universe. So it's persecuting religion to a degree not seen since the death of Mao. Its strategy of cultural genocide in Xinjiang and Tibet are the most extreme manifestations of this. All these factors have combined to create a lack of trust between the people and the regime which rules them. Since 2011, the budget for internal security has exceeded that for the military. The regime fears internal dissent more than it fears its foreign enemies. But the lack of trust is not only an internal problem, it also poisons China's international relations. Abroad, as at home, distrust has been dramatically intensified by the cover-up of the origins of COVID-19. This is part of a wider alienation of the US and its allies. Countries which once engaged with China in benign partnership have now become hostile. Trust will not be restored until there is a change of political regime in China. I repeat, this regime is outwardly strong, but inwardly weak. There's much evidence that the damage which the political system is doing to China is recognized by many in its ruling elite. I examine the evidence for this in my book. Here, I will cite one example. In 2012-2013, <clears throat> the Chinese government and the World Bank published a joint report entitled China 2030. It was the product of the biggest collaboration between the Chinese government and the World Bank ever. It proposed far-reaching reforms of the economy and society. There was, of course, no mention of political reform, but it was quite clear that none of these reforms could be fully implemented without political reform. That must have been clear to the Chinese who contributed to the study. Who led the input of the Chinese government? Today's Premier, Li Keqiang. I do not suggest that any leaders of the Communist Party have undergone a 
Damascene conversion to the ideals of liberal democracy. But I am convinced that some have reached a pragmatic recognition of the need for a change of political system. They can also see that paradoxically, their best hope of defending their own personal wealth and power is to lead the nation, lead the nation into systemic change. When dictators are overthrown, it's usually by rivals within the elite. This will be the fate of Xi Jinping. And those who overthrow him will not be satisfied by a change of leader. <clears throat> They'll want a transition to a democracy. So how can outsiders help those Chinese who want political change to achieve it? Moral outrage and soft power will not be sufficient. Military intervention is unthinkable. The US and its allies enjoy economic superiority over China and they must use it. China depends upon access to the world's major reserve currencies, the international banking system, the world's deepest capital markets, its biggest pools of mobile capital, and the greatest centers of scientific and technological discovery, all of which are controlled by the US and its allies. This gives us the power to create the conditions for change. We must exploit this power in a graduated way that incentivizes change and imposes a price on the present course. Because China is deeply interwoven with us, economically and socially, the elaboration and implementation of this strategy is a far more complex problem than that for confronting the Soviet Union. It requires a great effort of collaboration between different agencies within governments, between governments and strategists outside governments, and between governments. Decoupling across the board is neither realistic nor desirable. But we must accept short-run economic costs in order to defend and promote our long-term political and economic interests. Our governments must educate public opinion, including vested interests like Wall Street and the City of London, that ultimately our economic welfare depends upon global politics. To carry public opinion with them, our governments must be clear about the nature of the threat and open about the objective of a free China. The means for achieving that objective may seem, sometimes need to be protected by secrecy. But there is nothing to be lost and much to be gained by openly declaring our objective. The regime in Beijing already denounces hostile foreign forces for seeking political change in China. So we've nothing to lose by openness. Indeed, we have much to gain because those Chinese who secretly want change will be heartened by our commitment. The US has made a good start by legislation that will deny access to the US capital markets to companies that fail to disclose to investors financial information required by law. As all Chinese companies listed and traded on our markets fail to do. And by denying access to US technology for many companies that are linked to the military. Last week, the European Parliament voted overwhelmingly to suspend ratification of its comprehensive agreement on investment with China. I predict 
that that agreement will not be revived until there is political change in China. At last, the US and its allies have awakened from their sleepwalk on China. The hour is late, but not too late. We need to work with great urgency so that people like Deng Bia can soon return to Beijing to resume their great work of building a free China. Well, our thanks to uh, Roger Garside for getting our conversation going. And now we turn to uh, Tang Biao, who is Chinese, who's actually lived uh, much of the sweep of history that uh, Roger describes and is now in exile in this country. He's the former lecturer at the University of Politics and Law uh, in China. But above all, he is a, a human rights lawyer, a, a, a person who believes that law should be put into practice. And it was through the defense of, uh, uh, of a number of clients that got him uh, arrested and into trouble uh, in 2011. And since then, uh, since coming to the United States, he's been at Harvard Law School, uh, at Yale Law School, Hunter College, and now teaches uh, at University of Chicago at the Posen uh, Center on, on Human Rights. Uh, he is always, in my experience, a principled and reasonable voice. And uh, uh, Biao, we're very curious to get your reaction to the uh, remarks of Roger Garside. How practical is his analysis? How do you view it as a Chinese uh, who has lived inside this system that he describes? So the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much uh, for your introduction and thank you, uh, Roger, for your wonderful book and your wonderful uh, presentation. Um, and um, uh, thank you, um, Glenn, Larry, Liz, and everyone um, enjoy, uh, joining this uh, conversation. Um, so uh, after the Chinese Communist Party uh, established the totalitarian state in 1949, uh, some Chinese people have made great effort to fight for freedom uh, and democracy. Um, here are some pictures of the uh, democracy um, movement. Um, in in uh, 1957, the May uh, 19th movement, um, the April 5th movement, and Sudan Democracy Wall, and uh, everyone knows the uh, Tiananmen Democracy Movement in 1989, uh, and Charter 08, um, uh, that Dr. Uh, Liu Xiaobo and many other uh, Chinese intellectuals initiated. When I was in China, I promoted the rights defense uh, movement uh, since 2003. Uh, since the, uh, we used the uh, uh, existing legal channels to uh, defend uh, citizens' rights and freedom. We took human rights cases, uh, founded uh, NGOs, uh, developed uh, online campaigns, uh, participated in uh, local elections, and organized a protest uh, against the forced eviction and uh, miscarriage of uh, justice. Um, the um, main political social factors behind the rest defense movement uh, include the, the development of uh, uh, legal professions. In September 1976, Chairman Mao Zedong did the only correct thing uh, in his whole life. Uh, he finally died. Then the uh, legal system uh, could be recovered. And also the space for uh, traditional media and internet uh, development of market economy. And um, there had been a, a liber intellectual liberalization movement between 1980s and 2013. More and more Chinese people were supportive of liberal democracy and rule of law, not the party propaganda. The rights defense movement can be seen as a practice of Chinese liberalism. The development of this movement uh, experienced a four trends since its rising, uh, namely organization, politicization, uh, street activism, and um, uh, internationalization. Um, and because of my, uh, the Chinese government never uh, stopped its um, um, uh, crackdown. Uh, here are some pictures of the uh, human rights movement uh, since 2003. 
um, the Xiamen uh, protest, uh, how churches, uh, the, the Fujian um, protest against the, the arrest of three bloggers um, and Wukan village protest and sudden weekly and joint citizen meals, uh, part of the new citizens movement. And, um, and people um, were delivering the uh, speech uh, uh, to demand uh, the disclosure of official assets. So Chinese government um, never stopped its crackdown. And, um, and um, but because of my uh, human rights work, um, I was um, uh, banned from teaching and eventually fired uh, by uh, my university. Um, I was uh, disbarred. I was banned from uh, traveling internationally. And, uh, and I was even kidnapped uh, by Chinese secret police for three times and, and tortured. Um, but since Xi Jinping uh, came to power, uh, the persecution became much more brutal. The CCP targets not only uh, lawyers or, or, or dissidents, but also NGOs, uh, internet, um, like uh, uh, universities, uh, how churches, and and of course Tibetans and and the Xinjiang um, um, ethnic uh, minorities. Um, Everything in favor of uh, promoting civil society in Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao era had been uh, surprised by uh, Xi Jinping. Why? Uh, the Communist Party is uh, beset by economics drive um, conflicts between the people and the officials, widespread corruption, uh, environmental disasters, unrest in Xinjiang and Tibet, and its own sense of ideological crisis. So the party no longer has the ability to carry out the, the frantic, most uh, mass mobilization, and the public's frustration with the party is growing. On the other hand, the human rights movement had gained more and more support and influence uh, in Jiang and Hu era. The party regarded the pro-democracy movement as an urgent threat to uh, the uh, one-party rule. In this context, I made an argument that many may disagree. She abolished the presidential term limit, uh, established the cultural personality, uh, turning China from a collective dictatorship to a more personal uh, dictatorship. Um, but it is not that Xi Jinping has subverted the old system of the Communist Party, but that the party needs Xi Jinping to reverse its fate of being subverted. In the calculation of CCP, a personal dictatorship is more necessary and effective to respond to the comprehensive crisis than a collective dictatorship. So I'm skeptical that Li Keqiang, Wang Yang, or Wang Qishan uh, is willing to plan a coup to overturn Xi Jinping. The majority of uh, Chinese um, scholars uh, and that Western like uh, uh, Chinese scholars uh, tend to use authoritarianism to conceptualize and ca categorize uh, the post-mall Chinese political system. Um, but in my analysis, the current system is not authoritarian, but totalitarian system. So these um, um, six characteristics of uh, totalitarianism. And China has got 10 points uh, for B, C, and D, uh, and at least a ten, a nine points for A, E, and F. Uh, the CCP has 100% monopoly on military, judiciary, Congress, and the traditional media, and 90% monopoly on internet, uh, economic organizations, or social organizations. So China today is at least 95% totalitarianism. When talking about political change or social movement, the difference between totalitarianism and uh, authoritarianism matters a lot. Uh, what's more, the Communist Party has established what I call a high-tech totalitarianism. It utilizes uh, artificial intelligence, great firewall, big data, facial recognition, DNA, and modern telecommunications to keep people under uh, total surveillance. The internet has been used 
as an effective tool for censorship, propaganda, and brainwashing. Under the, uh, the high-tech version of 1984, any collective resistance from information uh, communication to um, to organization or mobilization um, becomes uh, extremely difficult. Uh, what's worse is, so uh, so uh, the, the Tiananmen massacre made the Chinese people live in what I call a post-tank uh, syndrome. Anger and fear turn into silence and silence into indifference and indifference into uh, cynicism. So the most uh, horrible autocracy is not the one suppressing resistance, but the one making you feel unnecessary to resist or even make you um, defend the regime. Um, think about the, the cynicism, social Darwinism and radical nationalism. We should not take it for granted that a regime change or a coup in China could lead to a constitutional democracy. There are some important elements impacting uh, Chinese political change, um, economic uh, crisis, bordering areas, the political str uh, struggles within the party and geopolitical uh, changes. But one thing many people have ignored is the Communist Party's uh, blight debt. Uh, since 1949, the party has committed extremely uh, cruel anti-humanitarian crimes. Like um, uh, here's a list from uh, the killing of landowners, uh, cultural revolution, Tiananmen massacre to the ongoing Uyghur uh, genocide. In my opinion, this is a huge barrier to uh, democratic change. The longer the party state remains, the more crimes it will commit, the more people will suffer, and the more difficult for the party to believe that they'll be forgiven by the people. Um, Xi Jinping and the party have explicitly excluded the choice of democratization. It's worth uh, recalling that uh, what Deng Xiaoping famously said after Tiananmen massacre, that the regime would be willing to kill 200,000 people in exchange for 20 years of stability. Here we have to distinct the CCP's interest from China's national interest. In most occasions, the two are in conflict Given the nature of one-party system operation, Li Keqiang or any other uh, potential top reformers uh, is not uh, innocent. Those who refuse this reform can uh, easily accuse the reformers to, uh, of uh, corruption or, or human rights violations. Uh, I was frequently asked um, uh, a question, and it's the title of this uh, event, uh, what should the outsiders do to promote uh, democracy in China? I have a list of suggestions, but uh, last month on, uh, when I, together with a few human rights defenders, met uh, Secretary of State uh, Blinken, he asked uh, what other things uh, the United States should not do. Um, so here are some suggestions. Uh, we should, um, uh, the first and the foremost thing is to stop uh, doing what are politically and morally wrong and what have been proven counterproductive, what have been facilitating the dictatorship, what have been endangering human rights and freedom like uh, stop providing technologies and equipment to Chinese censorship and the surveillance. Stop um, cooperating with uh, Chinese intelligence uh, in arresting dissidents and stop praising Chinese uh, dictators or treating them as uh, democratically elected leaders. Stop voting China to be a member of UN Human Rights Council or to host the Olympics. Stop Confucius Institute and many other organizations under the uh, United Front work. Stop sacrificing human rights by prioritizing other issues like a trade, nuclear, or uh, climate change. And I have uh, different opinions uh, from uh, Rogers about how likely a coup can happen in China, but I totally agree with him that the US and its allies should re-examine the engagement policy and support the Chinese people who are promoting a free China. 
In other words, no matter how difficult a regime change is in China, no matter how regime change policies used to be not working in other countries, the West should not exclude it from its China policy. Uh, that's the key to defend the uh, liberal international order. When the international uh, community sacrifices its own values for the sake of regional and international stability or uh, economic growth, um, it only tells the CCP that it does not need to reform. So unprincipled um, engagement with the autocratic regime is an alias for appeasement. Since 1989, or even earlier, the West has endowed and facilitated the rising of a dictatorial regime. China has become a direct and urgent threat to global human rights and democracy. It is the obligation and task of the Chinese people to overthrow the CCP, but it's also the interest and the responsibility of the West. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Tong Jiao. Uh, and now let me... Uh, uh, hand the session over to Elizabeth Economy, who for many years directed the Asia program at the Council on Foreign Relations, and now is a senior fellow at the uh, Hoover Institution. Uh, Liz? Great, thank you, Orville. Um, and I hope to bring you uh, back into the conversation as well. Um, so Roger and Biao, really two fascinating sets of remarks and very provocative. Uh, and Roger, congratulations on a terrific new book um, that's, I would say, both very informative and also just a fun read, um, which is not something that is all that easy to achieve. So I'm just gonna ask a couple of, of questions um, to get us started on the discussion. And Roger, let me start with you. Um, you know, let me ask you to address some of the points that uh, Biao raised, uh, namely that uh, in fact, uh, Xi Jinping, there's not going to be much difference between uh, Xi Jinping, Li Keqiang, Wang Yang, Wang Qishan, that in fact, uh, the arrival of Xi Jinping on, this, on the you know, China stage uh, was a gift to the party. Uh, it was a necessity for the party to save itself. And that is in the interest of all the rest of the Chinese leadership as well. Uh, and that a, a large degree of cynicism uh, has in fact set in uh, among the Chinese people. They may not be interested uh, in seeing uh, a massive regime change. Uh, and to that, let me add uh, an article that was just published by two of your British compatriots, uh, uh, Ron Mitter and uh, Elspeth Johnson, just published in the Harvard Business Review, uh, in which they argue that in fact, the Chinese regime is legitimate and we need to recognize it as such, uh, that in fact, this Leninist system uh, is recognized by the Chinese people as having produced a very competent uh, set of, of Chinese leaders. Uh, and by the way, look at how China managed through uh, the COVID-19 crisis, um, you know, much more effectively, certainly in the early stages than uh, any other large uh, economy or major democracy. Um, so how do you address uh, this particular set of issues that in fact, we should really just recognize this regime as, as legitimate uh, and that in fact, uh, there's not that much dissension uh, within the top leadership or indeed uh, throughout much of the population. And what you're talking about is gonna be a very narrow swath of, of sort of Chinese intellectual elites and, and a few others. Well, I, I'm flabbergasted that anybody should uh... Um, we're proposing in this day and age uh, that uh, we, we recognize the Chinese regime as legitimate. I mean, it is for the Ch Chinese people to re re recognize its legitimacy or otherwise. Um, let them have a free vote on it. I mean, that we should sit here in our comfortable sitting rooms in the West and, and declare uh, on behalf of the Chinese people, that the regime which has ruled them with dictatorship for 70 years is legitimate, takes my breath away. Um, I'll say no more on that subject. Um, let me um, address the tougher questions, uh, 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 pose uh, tougher issues raised by, by Deng Biao. Um, on whether uh, there are members of the elite uh, in the Communist Party today who secretly are 
deeply dissatisfied with the direction in which Xi Jinping is leading the party in China and whether they would like to remove him from office and uh, take China on a radically different course. Um, first of all, of course, and Deng Biao knows this better than I do, um, in a totalitarian regime, you don't signal your intentions or it's very difficult even to hint at your true beliefs. Um, but if we look back over uh, the careers of Li Keqiang, Wang Qishan, and Wang Yang and their personalities. Um, and uh, there is evidence which led me to uh, believe that they are deeply dissatisfied with the effect of the strategy pursued by uh, um, Xi Jinping. Um, I hope I have outlined um, some of those uh, reasons in my talk, but let me just add one thing, which I, during the uh, tsunami of outrage and anger provoked by the um, treatment of Li, Dr. Li Wenliang, the doctor in Wuhan, who um, signaled to uh, alerted China and the world um, to COVID-19 um, and was then suppressed. Um, in the aftermath of that tsunami, um, some people went online uh, in uh, the Chinese internet, inside China, and called for three members of the senior Chinese leadership to organize or to demand um, a calling of the, I think it was the full Politburo, um, in order to discuss whether Xi Jinping was the right person to continue to lead China. And who were the three people named in that internet? Li Keqiang, Wang Yang, and Wang Qishan. So it wasn't just Roger Garside sitting here in South London who had identified these three people as the likely leaders of a plot. Um, there were people deep inside China uh, who were doing the same. I'll finish there. Okay, great, thank you. So let me quickly uh, turn to uh, Tang Biao because I know that we're already running up against the time for, for everyone else to join in and I can see there are already a lot of questions. Um, but yeah, let me just ask you, you've lived through, um, as Orville said, basically the sweep of contemporary Chinese history and have experienced those times of greater opening and greater repression. Um, you've sort of indicated that you don't believe that Roger's scenario of a coup is the most likely. What in your mind will it take or would it take for a period of greater opening to return to China and stick? and for there to be genuine political democratic reform. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Um, so I, I really don't think uh, a coup um, is likely. Um, the, 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 the top leaders um, really are afraid of the retaliation from the people and, 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 and they, they don't believe uh, that the Chinese people will forgive their uh, so-called uh, blood debt. Um, and um, and um, I don't know um, how the, the Chinese people can achieve um, liberal democracy. I, I believe uh, China will, uh, will enjoy a constitutional uh, Western-style democracy, uh, but uh, it takes uh, maybe a long time and it's, um, uh, and there, there are a lot of political uh, un, un, uncertainties. Um, so the, um, 
and 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 since the the, the space for resistance in China um, is very much limited, I really hope the the, the international uh, community, especially United States and the major democracies, uh, can uh, think about um, uh, pushing uh, China's uh, democratization. So in this way, I um, agree. Um, with um, with Roger, that the the, the West um, has a responsibility and and, and really has a, has a, a capacity uh, to to push forward Chinese democracy. Okay, I know that my time is up, <laughs> Orville. I don't know. I I can't let you in, but maybe Glenn will be gracious and give you a shot at some point in the next fifteen minutes or so. Thank you very much, Liz. Thank you, Roger and Biao. I want to open up the question and answer section, uh, segment of our event uh, with a question from Larry Diamond. And then, as Liz promised, Orville Shell. Well, uh, Roger, you said that, uh, and thank you both for your extraordinarily moving and challenging remarks. Uh, Roger, you said that it shouldn't be just soft power that we use <clears throat> to challenge the Chinese regime. But what can we do with soft power to try and engage young Chinese people and others who would like change but lack access to information? And how can we uh, counter this new ideological campaign by Xi Jinping and the senior Chinese Communist Party leadership that seeking to isolate them from information flows, indoctrinate them, and whip up a new generation of patriotism, quote unquote. Well, I think we're already doing um, quite a lot, lot of what needs to be done. I mean, to take, uh, to enroll 300,000 Chinese students in US universities and, oh, Think of that. We've got, probably got about 150,000 in, in the UK. I mean, huge quantities. <clears throat> Taking young people at the most formative years of their education um, and exposing them uh, to our societies um, is a very powerful uh, means. Um, I think that we've got to redouble efforts to pierce the Great Firewall. I think that um, uh, VOA does a great job, but I am absolutely dismayed um, at the way that uh, the BBC Chinese language service has been allowed to, I don't know if it even exists anymore, but um, uh, that is a national scandal. Um, I think we all have to um, put more resources, and this is certainly true in the UK, we need desperately to raise the quality of our Chinese studies. Um, when we started fighting the Cold War against the Soviet Union, there was a massive investment in Soviet studies. Um, the same needs to be done um, today. Um, those are some of my, my thoughts, but maybe Deng Biao has others. Yeah, um, so I have a list of um, like uh, what we should do and what we should not do. Uh, and I totally agree with that, uh, with Roger, that the, um, the Great Farewell um, is extremely important. So I really hope our American president uh, can give a speech, um, tear down the Great Farewell. And, and Magnitsky Act uh, is very, uh, very powerful. That's one, one of the few uh, tools that uh, the, the, the Western countries can use uh, to sanction the human rights violators and the uh, corrupt officials. Thank you, Orville, please. Well, let, let me just make, uh some very brief comments. The first thing is I would have to say, having watched the Chinese drama unfold for as many decades as I have, we've never predicted anything accurately. So 
that's because China is such an unresolved society that they're equal and opposite forces always pulling in different directions. The second thing that I would note is, I think for me, the thing that makes me a, a little skeptical about Roger's scenario, not that I disagree with his analysis of the fracture lines in society, is that China's sort of techno-autocracy now, the means of control are radically different than anything we have ever seen in human history. And we simply don't know how all of that is gonna play out. So finally, I would say, I think if there's going to be a change in China, it must come from within China. And if I had to say, how will it come? It will probably have something to do with the economy. And all economies are cyclical. And when China hits a bad cycle, that is when it will be tested as we were tested in 2008, as we were tested just recently. And we'll see how that goes. Orville says we never predicted anything um, correctly. Um, I want to uh, tell him about one prediction I made, um, which was did come true. The morning I was in Beijing, the day that Deng Xiaoping was stripped of all his offices after the Qingming demonstrations of um, April 76, when I was on the square every day. My ambassador called me into his office and he said, Roger, you've heard the news, Deng Xiaoping's been stripped of all his offices. What's gonna happen now? I said, ambassador, Deng Xiaoping is going to get back and he's going to rule this country. My ambassador pushed himself back from his ch uh, chest, uh, from his uh, desk in his chair, um, uh, gave a mocking laugh and said, Roger, that's not going to happen. But I tell you what, if it does happen, I'll have you promoted. Sadly, by the time Deng Xiaoping got back, um, Teddy Yud had moved on to back to London. Um, but um, uh, the, to take the point about, uh, I want to take another point about prediction. Who in January 1991 was predicting that the Soviet Union was going to collapse and that the Communist Party of the Soviet Union would dissolve itself? No one um, amongst the huge Sovietology industry <clears throat> in the free world was saying that. But within 10 months, both those things had happened. Um, and of course, once great changes have happened, everybody can say they thought it was inevitable. Um, but the techno, techno uh, dictatorship, Techno-totalitarianism. Yes, I, I agree. This is a very important and challenging issue for readers of my book. But when scientists develop techniques for offensive espionage, they also develop defensive techniques against those measures. And I believe that the Chinese leadership is not negligent in that regard. And for every uh, measure that they develop, they will de be developing countermeasures and my plotters will have access to those countermeasures. Very well, Biao, uh, would you like to add anything to Roger's remarks before we take more questions? Uh, very briefly. Um, so I think the, that that kind of coup is not likely, but I uh, I think it's very important for the West um, to uh, think about that possibility to uh, to um, like a prioritized uh, human rights and democracy in China. So that would be uh, it, it. Will be very different to have that kind of scenario or totally uh, exclude, excluded. Um, yeah. So if you if you uh, prioritize uh, the trade, the, the economic relations, uh, not uh, human rights or China's democracy, uh, that's. Um, 
uh, that's not helpful, and 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 that will take a, a longer time for China to achieve democracy. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to invite members of the audience to submit more questions using the Q&A button at the bottom of their screens. But in the meantime, I want to draw on some threads that have been raised here in the conversation and also in the questions and maybe pull them together in a question that I'll start by posing to Roger. I'm thinking here of the Soviet Union and today's Russia. You know, the record of coups against non-democratic leaders is mixed at best. There were two abortive coups, one against Gorbachev, one, one against Yeltsin. Uh, and now we have Putin. And Russia is no less of a challenge to the United States and to Europe than it certainly was 30, 40 years ago, although the military challenge is significantly reduced. Very often, coups produce political disorder and violence, followed by consolidation under a different kind of dictator. She has painted himself into a corner. Should we be careful what we wish for? What risk of a populist regime that sustains itself even more than today through demagogic appeals to nationalism and Han chauvinism in the manner of a Milosevic or a Putin um, do we risk encountering? And I have in mind, of course, Milosevic in Kosovo, Putin in Crimea, and what does this mean for Taiwan? Well, it's always possible to paint gloomy scenarios. Um, and I don't, uh, for a moment, discount uh, the kind of outcomes which you've conjured up. <clears throat> and I was careful in designing my book to end it at the point where my successful plotters launch a transition to democracy um, to have assessed how that uh, transition will actually go uh, would have been the work of another book. And it would have required <clears throat> powers of foresight that not even I possess. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that is, um, uh, but there are reasons, and I give some in my last chapter, I give Li Keqiang the <clears throat> um, opportunity uh, in his first speech to the Central Committee to answer your question. So I would refer you for a full answer to your question to, to, to my last chapter. Um, but there are, an, I mean, there, uh, let me just sketch one or two things. Um, look at China, the structure of Chinese society today. You have a great middle class, which has grown up, a property owning class, which has grown up, which is educated, which has traveled, which is um, networked, um, which, as Deng Biao said, knows much more about human rights than anybody in the Soviet Union did. Um, millions have been, have had tertiary education at some of the finest universities in the world. Um, I think those are all factors, that's factors which in history have um, property owning classes have um, moved to a form of society, to the rule of law, to protect the property they have achieved. So I think that they have a strong uh, incentive uh, for that. Um, but um, beyond that, I must refer you to my book. Thank you. I want to give Biao the last word very briefly, uh, and then we'll conclude our session. Thank you very much. Um, the Chinese Communist Party always uh, resorts to nationalism and uh, like Han chauvinism uh, when facing that crisis. And they, they did this and they are doing this. And, and uh, regarding the ongoing Uyghur genocide, um, and it very disappointingly, uh, many Chinese um, 
like dissidents and 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 pro democracy uh, intellectuals um, uh, um, also embrace the the Han sovereignism and kind of racial uh, racism uh, nationalism. So um, so it's really hard to be optimistic um, when. Um, thinking about what's happening in Tibet and Xinjiang, and that might be um, uh, a great barrier and, um, uh, and um, uh, a lot of uncertainty uh, when, when China is going from, uh, from dictatorship to, to democracy. So I really hope, um, I, I, I really hope that the Chinese, like uh, uh, dissidents, human rights defenders and, uh, and intellectuals, they, uh, to give up their, uh, their narrow mandate uh, racism and Han sovereignism. Thank you very much, Roger, Biao, Liz, and Orville for an outstanding discussion, a lot of food for thought in it. I'd like to thank our audience as well, and particularly those who posed questions. We didn't get to them all, but I tried to draw some threads uh, out of them. This concludes our event. I invite you to uh, read Roger's new book, China Coup, and acquaint yourself with Tung Biao's inspiring lifetime of work as a lawyer and activist to build a better China. Thank you so much. Be well. <laughs>